0: And in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, beginning in verse 10. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. But when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. Could I pause here long enough to point out to you that had she actually succeeded in that, The whole plan of redemption would have been stymied, would have been crushed, could no longer have taken place. Verse 11, But Jehoshabiah, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain, and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. So Jehoshabiah, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. And he was with them hid in the house of God six years, and Athaliah reigned over the land. And in the seventh year Jehoiada strengthened himself and took the captains of hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jehoram, and Ishmael, the son of Jeho- Jehohanan, and Azariah, the son of Obed, and Maasiah, the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri into covenant with him. And they went about in Judah and gathered the Levites out of all the cities of Judah and the chief of the fathers of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem." And all the congregation made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said unto them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said of the sons of David. This is the thing that ye shall do. A third part of you, entering on the Sabbath of the priest and of the Levites, shall be porters of the doors, and a third part shall be at the king's house, and a third part at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But let none come into the house of the Lord, save the priests, and they that minister of the Levites, they shall go in, for they are holy. But all the people shall keep watch of the Lord. And the Levites shall compass the king round about, every man with his weapons in his hand. And whosoever else cometh into the house, he shall be put to death. But be ye with the king when he cometh in, and when he goeth out. So the Levites and all Judah did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest had commanded, and took every man his men, and were to come in on the Sabbath with them that were to go out on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest dismissed not the courses. Moreover, Jehoiada the priest delivered to the captains of hundreds spears and bucklers and shields, that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he set All the people, every man having his weapon in his hand, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar and the temple by the king round about. Then they brought out the king's son, and put upon him the crown, and gave him the testimony, and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him, Anointed him and said, God save the king. Now, when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people into the house of the Lord. And she looked, and behold, the king stood at his pillar at the entering in, and the princes and the trumpets by the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and sounded with trumpets. Also the singers with instruments of music, and such as taught to sing praise. Then Athaliah rent her clothes and said, Treason, treason. Then Jehoiada, the priest, brought out the captains of hundreds that were set over the host, and said unto them, Have her forth of the ranges, and whoso followeth her, let him be slain with the sword." For the priest said, Slay her not in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her. And when she was come to the entering of the horse gate by the king's house, they slew her there. And Jehoiada made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 16. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention in particular to the last verse of this section we just read, chapter 23, verse 16. Look at it again. And Jehoiada made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. He made a covenant with them. A covenant is an agreement. A covenant is like a contract. He made this covenant that they should be the Lord's people. Now, anybody who is familiar with the Old Testament history of Israel can tell you that the history of that nation consisted in a number of high points as well as a number of low points. There were highs and lows. You see them as you read the history of Israel. The Israelites, for example, entering the land under Joshua. That certainly makes for a high point. And how I would pray that the Lord would raise up such a generation in our day that could do the exploits that that Joshua generation did. The building of the temple in the days of Solomon. That marks another high point in the history of the land. When that temple was built, it was dedicated to the Lord, and at that dedication service, something happened that had not happened for some 400 years, and that is the Shekinah glory, the glory of Christ, filled the temple and filled it in such a way that the priests couldn't even enter into the temple because of the bright splendor of the glory of God that had filled the house. There was a sense in which you could say that revival came to the nation of Israel on that occasion when that temple was dedicated. But there were also low points in Israel's history, The dividing of the nation into two kingdoms, I think you could say, would mark a low point. The northern tribes would break off from Judah and would sink into a form of idolatry from which they would never recover. That certainly marks a low point. And the passage that we just now read, I think you could say marks a low point as well. There's a very important lesson to be learned from this particular low point in Israel's history. King Jehoshaphat, you see. We didn't read his name. He goes back a little bit earlier, but he was the one during the days of his reign who evidently couldn't stand the fact that the children of Israel were divided into two nations— And so he was willing to enter into an alliance with one of the most wicked kings of the north, that being King Ahab. He would enter into a military alliance with Ahab, even though there had been a prophet of the Lord on hand that had denounced the contemplated military campaign and predicted the defeat of the Israelite armies. What well, Jehoshaphat went along with that is really kind of hard to fathom. But we learn from King Jehoshaphat the consequences that follow alliances with apostasy. The rotten fruit of this alliance, you see, was the marriage of King Jehoram, the son of King Jehoshaphat, to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, She's the one we read about in our scripture reading. Her name was Athaliah. She's the one who, upon learning of the death of her son, sought to slay every descendant of David, thus attempting to bring an end to the Davidic dynasty over Judah. And like I said a moment ago, had she succeeded, that would have extinguished God's plan of salvation. Of course, we know that it could never happen, but from a human perspective, it sure looked like it came close. It was indeed a low point in the history of the nation. And were it not for the daughter of King Ahaziah, who was also the wife of the priest Jehoiada, taking and hiding the last surviving son of David, the wicked queen Athaliah would have succeeded in her plot to exterminate the entire seed of David. For six years, Joash was hidden in the house of God. The portion of scripture we've read just now describes for us the strategic way seven years later in which Jehoiada made it known that there still was a surviving son of David. Plans were made to guard this child, and at last the time came when he was crowned king. Imagine this, he was seven years old at that time, that he was crowned to be king. Queen Athaliah soon discovered what had happened, but it was too late for her. The one who cried treason would be executed for her own treason, and the Davidic line would continue to reign over Judah, and thankfully, God's plan of salvation would continue to advance. Now, as I said a moment ago, it was a low point in the history of the nation, and yet the time was marked by a very significant act that took place, and this is our text today, in verse 16, let me read it again. And Jehoiada made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. That is perhaps the clearest indication that the nation was rebounding from the low point it had reached. It was a renewing of the covenant between the people and the priest, and the king. This renewing of the covenant was an activity that took place at various times in the history of Israel, something you should pay close attention to when you read the Old Testament, how often this covenant is renewed. And in our text, it marks the turning of the corner, as it were. It marked the end of a low period and the beginning of a new period that would, at least for a time, be marked by spiritual prosperity and covenant faithfulness. Now, why have I bothered to tell you all this? Uh, It's not simply to give you an Old Testament history lesson we actually share something in common this morning with the Israelites of the Old Testament. We, too, are a covenant people of God as believers in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we have come, and the author is speaking here, Spiritually, when he says, We have come to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And in verse 24 we read, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 that there was a time when we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the way things used to be with us. But Paul goes on to say in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near to Christ by his blood. We've been brought into what you could call the covenant of peace with God. We've been saved by the merits of the blood of the everlasting covenant. How near to God are we? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 2 and verse 19 that we're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And I might just add here, this is why the Jews absolutely hated Paul. He was viewed as someone that was taking their blessings, their heritage, and he's giving it out to these Gentile dogs, so to speak, bringing them right into the same promises, the same covenant promises. That was why there was always tension between Paul and the Jews. Now, just as the history of Israel reveals to us high points and low points in the spirituality of that nation, so do we in our lives go through high points and low points in the course of our walk with the Lord. I think if we're honest, we have to admit uh, we don't go day by day, week by week, skipping along the mountaintops, so to speak. We go into the valleys. We go into times of trial. We go into times of despair and discouragement. We have high points, we have low points. There are times when our religion seems to be almost completely extinguished in our hearts and our lives. We become so taken up with the world that our citizenship seems to be of the world. Our covenant relationship to God through Christ seems at times to be a mere abstraction, and we practically despise it. We count it to be something of little importance almost the way Esau despised his birthright. What is needed in such times? When we become cold, when we become negligent, when we are at that spiritual low ebb, what is our need in that kind of condition? Well, the same thing is needed for us that was needed for the Israelites in our text, a renewing of the covenant. Our time around the Lord's table can serve that very purpose. You see, around this table we remember Christ, but we do more than just remember him. By partaking of the bread and the cup, we pledge to him before each other our faith anew and afresh in him. And we consecrate ourselves to him upon remembering his person and his work. We renew the covenant. So that's what I want to focus on today for just a few moments. I want to focus on such action which is necessary time and again for the people of God. I want you to think with me, therefore, on this theme of renewing the covenant. And I want to focus on this theme with the aim of doing that very thing this morning around the Lord's table. We must renew the covenant with Christ. And I'd like to address this theme from three different perspectives that are all connected here, as we'll see. Let's think, first of all, on the priestly perspective of renewing the covenant, the priestly perspective. And isn't it interesting that in our text, it is Jehoiada the priest who initiates the renewal of the covenant. The king was a mere boy, seven years old, who would not have even survived had it not been for Jehoiada's wife, who was also the previous king's daughter, as well as the sister of Joash. She rescued Joash from the plot of Athaliah and delivered him to the watch care of her husband, Jehoiada the priest. And the renewal of this covenant consists of a renewal of the relationship between the priest and the people. We didn't take time to read beyond verse 16 in our scripture reading. But if you look at verses 17 and the verses that follow, you'll see what takes place under the terms of the renewal of the covenant between the priest and the people. The house of Baal is broken down. The altars and images of Baal are destroyed. The priest of Baal is put to death. The Levites are restored to office. The burnt offerings of the Lord are restored. And the temple of the Lord is guarded. It's a renewal of the divinely ordained method of worship. Simply put, it was the forsaking of sin and a renewed coming to Christ. And isn't that what we do around the Lord's table? The thing I want you to see in particular, however, is that it is the priest here that initiates and directs the renewal of the covenant. His actions on this occasion are foundational for everything that follows. The nation, you see, would have been no better off had they merely crowned the boy king but left their religion in such a corrupted state The Lord would have been no more pleased with the son of David ruling over a nation of Baal worshipers than he was with the wicked daughter of Ahab and Jezebel in charge. And just as the action of the priest was foundational for the renewing of the covenant, we need to be reminded that Christ's action as a priest is foundational to our reconciliation and renewal to him. We know, of course, that as our mediator, Christ, who is the only mediator between God and men, he executes three offices He's our prophet, He's our priest, and He's our king. If you've taken the time to learn and memorize your shorter catechism, you will know that. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. And his office as our priest, you could say, is foundational to the other two offices that he occupies. As a prophet, he proclaims, he declares to us the will of God for our salvation. But what exactly does he declare? Well, he declares what he's accomplished as a priest. What did he accomplish as a priest? He declares that as a priest, he offered himself. That's what a priest did, didn't he? In Old Testament times, he offered the sacrifice. Christ had a sacrifice to offer. His offering was himself. You see, he was not only the priest, he was the sacrifice as well. He offered himself. He declares to us then in his prophetic ministry what he's accomplished as a priest. He declares that as a priest, he offered himself for our sins. The shedding of his blood is in connection with the offering of himself. And because he offered himself, he has something to declare to us as our prophet. He declares to the world that the door of salvation is open. He declares that atonement has been made. He declares that he loves us and that he gave himself for us. The subject, therefore, of his prophetic ministry is his priestly work. And around this table, this communion table, we remember his priestly work. The bread reminds us of his humanity. He could not become our priest without becoming one of us. Every high priest, the author of Hebrews writes, is taken from among men in things pertaining to God. That's Hebrews 5 and verse 1. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's in Hebrews 2 and verse 17. You see how in both instances in order to be a priest he had to become one of us. He had to be a man. The bread that we'll partake of reminds us that he did just that. He became a man. Our time around this table is to a large degree to commemorate the work that he's accomplished as our great high priest. And by partaking of the bread and cup, we're saying to God that we believe in Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. We believe in his shed blood. We believe we have no hope of salvation apart from his atoning death. But with his atoning death, we enjoy a sure hope for heaven and everlasting life. There are a number of hymns in our hymn book that give good expression to our participation in the Lord's table. We say, for example, when we partake of the bread and cup, what the hymn writer says when he writes, Hallelujah, tis done. I believe on the sun. I am saved by the blood of the crucified one. I love the refrain of a familiar hymn in our book, which reads, I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. When you partake of the bread and the cup, You're pledging to God, to yourself, and to those around you that you do believe and you will believe that Jesus died for you. When you partake of the cup, you're able to raise and answer the question, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And you're able to pledge, This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. By partaking of the bread and cup in this fashion, you are effectively renewing the covenant with God through Christ. You're calling on God to remember Christ in order to look upon you with favor. And you're pledging to God that you remember Christ as the meritorious cause for all that you enjoy and hope for. Every blessing that is bestowed, every spiritual blessing, every material blessing, every saving blessing, it's all traceable to Christ and to Christ alone. So that's the priestly Perspective, okay, of renewing the covenant. Would you think with me, secondly, for a moment, on the kingly perspective of renewing the covenant? Our text tells us that Jehoiada made a covenant not only between him and all the people, but also between the king and all the people, also. The story of Joash, you know, is one of those tragic stories that, like other tragic episodes in Scripture, starts out well, but ends bad. All the while, the young boy, King Joash, all the while he had the benefit of the priest, Jehoiada's leadership and guidance, he did very well. He took the initiative to restore the broken-down temple of the Lord. But once Jehoiada was gone, Joash caved into other influences and sadly left the house of the Lord to serve groves and idols, it says in chapter 24, verse 18. For a time, however, the renewal of the covenant included submission to the king and undoubtedly included the stipulation that the king himself would submit to God. Not hard to submit to rulers when those rulers submit to God. When they act contrary to God and God's precepts, then it becomes a much greater challenge. Thankfully, in the new covenant, our great high priest is also our king. Zechariah prophesies about Christ when he says in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, that he, referring to Christ, shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, there he is as king, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, there he is as king and priest, and the council of peace shall be between them both. As our priest, you see, Christ has won the right to his kingship. It was because he humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant, and as a servant became obedient unto death, that God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know how many of you, probably not that many, are football fans, but perhaps you have seen or heard in the news of what happened to a young defensive back who plays for the Buffalo Bills. He made a tackle, and in the course of making that tackle, he collapsed, his heart stopped beating. They had to bring immediate uh, help to him, they applied the paddles to him, they actually restored his heartbeat right there on the football field. Then hauled him off to the hospital. The game came to a stop. Uh, this was a serious matter indeed. Nobody knew. This was a life and death matter. This wasn't a simple uh, precautionary type thing, as oftentimes they are. Uh, there was some doubt as to whether or not this young man would live. And it just created a hush and a soberness about that stadium that anybody who watches football had never, ever seen. Everybody, both teams, came to the middle of the field. They bowed the knee and they prayed for this young man. And in the days ahead, those prayers have increased and there were a couple of football games yesterday and those games were preceded by both teams coming out to the middle of the field and taking a knee and praying. And the Lord has seen fit to answer prayer. And this young man seems to be doing much better by the grace of God. Now, I don't know the spiritual condition of these football players. I don't know who they're praying to or uh you know, what their view of Christ is. But it certainly brought to mind that text from Philippians that tells us that a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hopefully you have done that to the saving of your soul. If you have not made such a confession, you should know that a day is coming in which you will. But if you wait until judgment day for such a confession, it will avail you nothing. It will be done. Your confession will be made to the glory of God, but it will be on that occasion to the condemnation of your soul. Oh, better by far to make such a confession to your salvation while there is time. And so our pledge to God and to Christ around his table is not just a pledge of faith in his finished work. It is certainly that. But it's also a pledge of our willingness and desire to submit to him as our king. It seems that submission to the rule of Christ is the thing that we stray from time and again. There's an old nature in us all, you see, that wants its own way. We won't have this man rule over us. This is what was said in essence, you know, in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve. This is what led to our fall. And it's what the devil continues to tempt us toward. God doesn't have your best interests in view, he whispers in your ear. You have to fend for yourself. Submission to God will only bring misery and bondage. Following your own carnal impulses is what leads to satisfaction and fulfillment, he adds. And know how sad that is that there are so many that live by that rule. And as many times as we've proven the devil to be a liar by accruing misery and guilt to our souls, it seems that there's something in us that still gravitates to the notion that we're somehow entitled to rule ourselves and that we're better off ruling ourselves. The Lord's table, therefore, calls us back to our senses by calling us to renew our covenant loyalty and submission to Christ as our Savior and Lord. You see, around this table you could argue that there is a sense in which we are loved back into submission by remembering Christ's life and death. As you contemplate his body broken for you and his blood shed for you, then at some point your heartfelt cry says, that man of Calvary has won my heart from me and died to set me free, blessed man of Calvary. So we must renew the covenant of grace with God through Christ this morning by pledging our faith in Christ's person and work and by confessing our failures, but expressing our desires to submit to him as our Lord. We plead his blood over our lack of submission and thank him for the provision he's made, which keeps the way open for us to Renew our covenant ties to him. And then consider with me thirdly and finally, the aim behind this renewal. The aim behind renewing the covenant. And this is revealed very plainly in our text when we read, Jehoiada made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. There's the aim. There's the renewal. That they should be the Lord's people. In this renewal of the covenant by Jehoiada, we're at once reminded of the higher spiritual truth, which is exactly stated by the text, that we should be the Lord's people. Here's the aim behind Christ becoming a man that we might belong to the Lord. Here is why he shed his blood, that he might purchase us to himself. If we are the purchased possession of God, then it must be said of us that we are the Lord's people. What an incredible manifestation of grace. We would wonder, would the Lord have me to be his? Would the Lord even take me? Some time ago, and this was quite some time ago, when in Sunday school I led a course in uh, the Ten Commandments in connection with the Shorter Catechism, we noted how much grace can actually be found in those commandments. We think of them as the essence of the law and then a sense there is. But that does not take away from the fact that there is so much grace in the Ten Commandments. you think of the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we see from this commandment, by implication, the desire of God that we be his people. Does he desire us to be his? Would he take us to himself? We can measure the strength of his desire by what he commands. His desire is strong enough for us to command that we have no other gods before him. Why? Why no other gods before God? Because he wants us for himself. We own him. He wants that we own him as God and our God. And that message is strengthened still more when we contemplate the bread and the cup. Again, we ask, would God have me to be his? Would God take me to himself? How does the bread answer that question? Well, it reminds us that God so desired it, desired it so strongly that he was willing to send his son to become one of us, and Christ was willing to come in order to be broken and his blood shed in order that we might be the people of God. How does the cup answer that question? It tells us that Christ would be willing to be flogged in order to make us his. He would be willing to have a crown pressed into his brow. He would be willing to be crucified and put on display in pain and humiliation in order that we might become his. I think it's pretty safe to say that Christ desires us. That can never be an issue when we remember his broken body and shed blood. The real issue becomes whether or not we'll give ourselves to be his. This table affords us the opportunity to do just that anew. By partaking of these elements, we're able in humble and grateful praise to say, Lord, I don't know why you would want me. I'm altogether wretched and defiled and sinful. I come so far short of thy glory, but obviously, Lord, you do desire me. I'm faced with compelling evidence that is too strong to deny. Your body broken for me and your blood shed for me. And so we're moved to confess that drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. That's the aim behind renewing the covenant. The giving of ourselves to Christ anew so I think you can see that we're in a position to make good use of the Lord's table this morning. We're to remember our Savior, his person and work, his shed blood and atoning death, but our remembrance should also be done with an aim, that aim being that we pledge ourselves to be his. It is our privilege to renew our covenant loyalty to Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, Let's engage in that activity today as we partake of the bread and the cup. Let's close in prayer then before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee that thou dost desire to take us to be thy people. Lord, thou art all our hope and peace. The blood of Christ is all our righteousness. Salvation is not of works that we have done, but it is holy of thy grace. O oh Lord, most desirously then do we remember thee now and pledge our faith in thee and pledge that with thy help We will submit to thy rule joyfully because thou hast made us thine own. So, Lord, draw near to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.